Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Oh, we're off, we're off. It's midday. It's midday. It's actually midday as well. This only just occurred to us. It's occurred to us this week, <laughs> out of all the weeks, that actually we could just do it. We already do it as live, but it's not mm-hmm. quite live. It's just, it only just occurred to us this week that we could actually start at 12 and then we don't have to sort of like do the maths. Mm. You can just literally say it starts at 12. It's a whole 48 hours early. Exactly. For us, for you, it's bang on time. Or whenever you want to listen to it, you don't have to be a slave to the uh, to, uh, to the gods of the clock. But you could always listen to it at midday every week on a day of your choosing. You can just and, listen to uh, it live. Listen to it live on the on the radio station. Yeah, that's yeah. the other option, isn't it? You can always um, just listen to it as normal. Yeah, listen to it as normal. I mean, um, that's that's how I'd do it. Uh, but uh, but it's also you know it doubles up as a podcast and um, and you might be listening to that. Um, but as you, uh, as as normal, uh, you're listening to uh, Fan Club with me, uh, Nick Helm, uh, and you can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram on uh, the Nick Helm at the Nick Helm. Uh, and then you're also listening to uh, this is my co-host. co-host. Yeah, that's right. So how, how do you describe yourself? Well, I guess when, right? when you know, like let's say, um, let's say you're going to like you're at a wedding. Yeah, I say I'm Nick Helm's co-host. Yeah, that right. Yeah, okay, cool. You're all right with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. If I meet someone new, so what you do okay. for a living? I say, well, not for a living. I want to do for. Um... What do I do for <laughs> the money? I say I'm Nick Helms' co-host. Okay. Oh, do you know what then, Nat? Um, yeah. I, I, that's fine with me. All right. Okay. Oh, you, okay. I didn't realize I need permission. Well, I think that you know, if if they ask me, yeah. it's important that I don't just blurt out, "Oh, he's my sidekick." Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I yeah. say, co-host. Co-host. Yeah. If but we co-hosts. We're on equal footing, aren't we? Well, okay. Um, if you if you want to be called a co-host, I'll start treating you like one. They have what, noticed. What have we got coming up on the show today, Nathaniel? What have we got coming up today? Well, we've got some fan Absolutely. mail. Ah, treading water for time. Ah, one day, Nathaniel. Um, what, have we, what, have you, what have you noticed? Well, this week we're going to have some uh, fan mail. And we're going to have a guest, and we're going to have an Alice Cooper track, and we're going to have our guest track. And... I could have told you this, <laughs> but you know that's why I'm uh, the host. Well, can you still be the host and I be the co-host? So does that not make sense? Mm. Sub sub hosts. Sub hosts. I think that's what you might be. Um, There's um on the food, but on the on the logo for Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club, yeah. it's got Nick Helm, and it's yeah. all in a square, so it kind of makes sense. It's all in a square. It's all in the same shapes. So it's got Nick Helm. It's got fan club in big writing, but because Nathaniel Metcalf, I presume it's because it's a long name. My name is shrunk, isn't it? To tiny. Tiny letters. Tiny letters to fit um, it in. Do you know what? It's it, the fact that you've got a long name uh, is purely coincidental. Right, right. 
when we signed when we signed the contracts yeah yeah originally yeah um when we signed them yeah. i it was very much like a paul newman steve mcqueen situation right yeah uh, they said, "Do you want them both the same size, uh, equals equal equal size? But do you want to go left to right, Nick Helm, yeah, Nathaniel Metcalf, and top to bottom, it'll be Nathaniel Metcalf, Nick Helm. Yes, so yeah, yeah. Nathaniel Metcalf will be slightly higher." And I said, "No, make it as small as you can." <laughs> and they said, "Well, actually, that helps because if it's that small, then it looks quite nice in a square." And I said, "I don't give a shit about <laughs> about uh, shapes. Yeah, could be a star for all I care. Could be a rhombus, right? Just make it smaller." And they did. God bless them. And now, four hundred and ninety episodes later, and <laughs> I've got tiny. And any writing here we are here we are and we're doing Apparently on the um on the persuaders the tony curtis roger moore tv show i think before they started they were having lots of kind of heated debates over who would be top billing on that show uh tony curtis right i think in the end they settled for i think each week someone else gets top billing that's a ball ache isn't it they should have just said roger moore because it was a british was it a british tv show yeah yeah they should have said Roger Moore and then and Tony Curtis. And Tony Curtis would have got like to just like swan in and just do his bit. Yeah. But I think um, apparently they got on really well. So it wasn't really an issue. I think they well, I, I I imagine I think they're very similar, right? I yeah. think maybe Tony Curtis is slightly more sort of like um flamboyant, a bit more of a a bit less um uh whatchamacallit, modest. Yes, yeah. But I think that they're sort of like similar. Yes, I think so. I think they've got a similar vibe. And they're, I think, they're, they're like, they're like uh, transatlantic cousins, right? Yes. And I think in a way, like Moore's probably the kind of person that, despite that, having an argument about billing, he's probably quite a, uh, an affable person or was. Pro- while, while we're just getting warmed up, I should probably uh, just say that um, we've had some... Uh, breaking news at uh, fan club towers. Oh, yeah. And that is that uh, Roger Moore and um, Tony Curtis uh, were quite relaxed around each other on the set of The Persuaders. Oh, wow, that's good to know. So if you're a long-time listener, you'll know that that is urgent <laughs> urgent news on this site, on this channel. Um, so... Um, uh, uh, I yeah, I've never seen the persuaders. Now, uh, first rule of fan club: tell your friends. Second rule of fan club: tell your friends. We are. I mean, this is a high energy, high octane, high voltage. Episode. Okay, right. So, what have you been a fan of this week? What have I been a fan of this week? What have anyone been a fan of this week? I hope. Hopefully, we've got some fan mail. Um, um, I tell you what. Oh, we watched Crank this week. Crank, yes. Yeah. It's great, isn't it? Great film. And I think almost doesn't get spoken about as much as it should now for how kind of, um, well, it feels almost like, um, feels almost groundbreaking, I think, Crank, in a way. I think it's like a proper sort of way ahead of its time um, or or, or of its time. That sort of very knowing. When was it? 2003? 
Oh, I thought it was a bit after that, but yeah, could maybe, be. Could maybe it's a bit. Maybe it's a bit after. That. It was sort of like handheld digital cameras were becoming, yeah, um, uh, really sort of like affordable enough to be able to just, you know, destroy. I suppose. Carry on. I'm not, oh, no. I'm not I think one it. of the. Um, I think the description. It might have been Richard Sandlin who said this, but he said it's basically speed. But the bus is Jason Statham. Yeah. And that's the premise. And it's just such a great... So it's a man who has to keep his heart rate above, what is it, like... He's got to keep his heart rate up. He's sort of like, he's been been injected by a poison, and if his adrenaline levels drop, then he dies. So Jason Statham has to go around doing stuff that um, pumps up his adrenaline. It's like committing crimes and... uh, stealing and stuff and doing cocaine and just well he's a bad guy he's called chef chelios and he's a real bad guy <laughs> and he he wakes up and he's sort of um he's gonna die if he doesn't keep moving and so he's got like it's a bit like doa as well where he's got to sort of like um solve the mystery of who killed him uh but it's like a roadrunner um a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah. It's, and it's a comedy. I would say that it's an action film, but if you, it, it, and it stars Jason Statham, but it's basically this very experimental. It, what was that? Um, what was that? What was that really experimental short film about the guy, The Wizard of Time and Speed? The Wizard space of, and Time. The Wizard of Space and Time. Yeah. It's sort of a bit like that where it's kind of like, oh, right, we're going to do this. And they're just, they're just fucking around with sort of like, at the time, m- modern technology. And, and I think that we've seen so much stuff like that because obviously we have all of the tech. You could make crank on your phone, basically. Now. Mm. But we've got all the technology at our fingertips and it's all over the place. It's on YouTube and it's on Instagram. And you can see kind of like um, people making videos like, that all the time but when you go back and watch crank it's almost a little bit quaint because you go oh look what they they're doing but um uh you just have to remind yourself no this is this is this was cutting edge this yeah. was sort of like they'd gone we're ma- we're gonna make an actual well it's not big budget there's really cute things that you see in it like um the standoff at the end they're filming in la and the standoff at the end is at this posh sort of like um, balcony bar. But as they're filming there, you can see the sun rising and the way that the light is hitting them, you know that it's morning sun. So they've all been there since like two o'clock <laughs> in the morning. And they're allowed, you know, they would have, the, the club would have said, yeah, you can film here but you have to film here out of hours. So they would have arrived when the club was clearing out and then they would have all set up and then they'd have kind of like rehearsed or whatever and they'd have got all of like the choreography done. And then once the sun was rising, they'd have filmed it. And throughout the sequence, you can see the sun getting higher and higher to the point that it's sort of like midday. And then they'd have been like, right, you're out of here. And then I imagine that they'd have all gone to a diner around the corner and they'd have all kind of like checked all of their stuff and they'd have all been kind of like, oh, I can't believe we've done that. We filmed the finale of the, of the movie. And it's kind of like, yeah, it's it, you can sort of see the stitching together of like how they made the movie. Yeah, just kind of that's like one of the things that we've done during lockdown. 
and I don't know, I don't know quite why it's come at this point in my life, but like I really enjoy watching adverts or odd films, um, or even TV adverts, and you can see the joints and you can kind of like see the production decisions from the back. Mm. And it's that checker trade advert that you got with Colin Holt in it. Um, and uh, they're sort of like the checkertrade.com. Checkertrade, checkertrade, checkertrade.com, checkertrade, checkertrade.com. Those adverts. And it's like Colin Holt is dressed up as like Julius Caesar and there's a Roman guard. And the whole, they, they did two adverts. The first advert is filmed in a doorway where someone's rang on the door and they've opened it and they're dressed as sort of like Romans and they have a chat. And then the sting at the end when they sing the catchphrase is filmed in a garden. And it, and it's just very enjoyable going, well, they filmed that during COVID, didn't they? During lockdown, where one of them's allowed in the house and the other one's allowed outside the house. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just, they've just filmed it in a doorway with the door open so that it's all COVID safe. And then the, it says change location. They've just gone to a garden. Yeah. And, then, and, and you're watching all of like, the production decisions and you're kind of like going, I reckon that's what happened. And with Crank, you're kind of, you know, you're kind of like going, oh yeah, well it's low budget, so they would have literally not asked for permission to do a lot of this stuff because it's all handheld, and then that's where the sun is rising, so they would have got that place for free or for cheap. Yeah, you probably wouldn't have seen a film like that at the time outside of somewhere like Japanese cinema where you'd get these kind of very odd movies, and this felt like a kind of a kind of American version of some of, of like the kind of wild. Movie. Yeah, they're kind it's of wild, kind of like, yeah, it's kind sort of, of Eastern Eastern cinema, kind of sort of breaking lots of rules and kind of being silly but playing it. I think it's the origin, really, of why Jason Statham is such a beloved actor now as well. Well, it's sort of like um, the antithesis to Transporter. Yes. Like, although Transporter is sort of like um, a kissing cousin. Um it's like you got. I, I don't know. Transporter is sort of like off the wall and sort of like. Um, uh, well, I was going to say wacky, but I don't want to say wacky. Um, oh, it's like oh, like El Mariachi. Mm. Sort of like, um, like Robert. It's weird that Robert Rodriguez, with all of his skills, went the way of cheap CGI and blue screen, green screen in all of his films. Where in actual fact, he could he could have been sort of like making crank kind of movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're all sort of like high, high hyper low budget. And you know, do you know what I mean? It's like the more mm. money that Robert Rodriguez gets, the sort of like not wouldn't ever say lazy. I think he's an absolutely incredible um, director with great imagination, and it, he's he's like one of a kind. Like mm. he has his own his entire film studio in his garage and yeah. he's and he's he's incredible but i would say that um that he became like really reliant on green screen i think maybe it was sin city that did it when he realized that if he just filmed everything well it's, i think it's that thing where he switched to digital video wasn't he which same kind of thing where he just realized how much easier it is to film stuff with dv cameras and then be able to manipulate them all later but you can just do it much faster i think was always is Thing, yeah. isn't it? like oh, i can do it quicker if i just use dv cameras scan it all in and then rely on you know fixing it all later yeah 
Uh, yeah, and um, and but when you see Crank, that sort of like was out around the same time as well, it wasn't quite the same time as um, uh, uh, what was it called, Grindhouse? Hmm. Um, but it was, you know, mid to late two thousands. I don't know. It just feels like, but whereas with Transporter, it's um, who directed that. It wasn't Luc Besson, was it? Was it, it, was, was it Louis Leterrier? Louis Leterrier directed it. It was produced by Luc Besson. Louis Leterrier directed it. And it's very high-octane, slick, glossy. This is what an action film looks like. And it's sort of like there's violence and probably a bit of swearing in it. I can't really remember. It's been a while. But it's kind of like squeaky clean. It's like, oh, there's he's sort of an anti-hero. He's what, a, a driver who transports stuff. They take his cargo and now he wants it back. But it's sort of like this is this is an action movie. He goes around kicking stuff. There's some really great stunts on a level of kind of Jackie Chan type stuff where it's really inventive and but it's sort of like a fun action film with not really many sharp edges and it looks slick and glossy. Whereas you had Crank, which is coming out, which is his other other franchise, which is coming out around the same time. And it's all sort of like jagged edges. He's a horrible character. It feels sort of like dangerous when you're watching it. It's like it's it's not a nice film. It's kind of like and he he's playing a bad guy that's going around killing bad guys, and you know it's all up for grabs. Hmm. Um, and it's kind of like, a, and it's a comedy. I would say, yeah, definitely a comedy. And it shows him in a really good light that he signed up to it. Because I can't imagine it was probably a thing where if he's doing movies like Transporter, I could almost imagine his kind of management being a bit like, nah, maybe don't do this one. Crank. And him kind of obviously seeing what's good about it in it. It feels like a kind of a smart thing to have signed up for because it feels ahead of its time and a bit like, no, this is a good one. This is going to be good. It really does, but you have to remind yourself sort of a bit when you're watching it to go like, oh, no, this was brand new because it was so brand new that... um, Ghost Rider had come out and Ghost Rider was awful. Mm-hmm. And Ghost Rider was one of the Marvel films before the before Iron Man. Yeah. Where like it's all CGI and they've taken like a character about what a hell demon whose uh, face and skin burns off and turns into a flaming skull. And they've made it into a kid's film and starring Nicolas Cage. And so when they were doing the sequel to Hellboy, they were like, let's get the guys that did Crank. And so oh, yeah, they did, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so Hellboy 2 is the Crank. Ghost though. Rider 2. Ghost, sorry, Ghost Rider 2 is the um uh it's the Crank directors who, you know, they sort of uh taped cameras to their hands and got on um roller skates and then skated up and down mountains at high speed to simulate like car chases and stuff like that. So, and Nicholas Cage was like, Oh yeah, let's do stuff like this. Um, and so it, there was like this moment where it was a brand new thing and everyone was like, Oh, this will, this, if we do it like this, it will reinvigorate our kind of like failing um, franchise. And that yeah. was when Hellboy one was maybe it was a PG or a 12. Sorry, not Hellboy. Uh, Ghost, Rider. Ghost Rider 1 was like a PG or a 12 and then Ghost Rider 2 was like aiming to be like an R rating so it was like either it was a 15 or an 18 um, 
um, which is not really much of a difference between a 12 and a 15. Um, but um, yeah, I, it's, it's more to do with the difference between a PG and a 15. Yeah. But, um, but uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's, it's kind of, I mean, then we started watching Crank 2, but it's horrible. It's like every single, um, every single female character is a sex worker and the way the camera sort of like moves all over them. It's kind of like, it's really uncomfortable to watch because you just kind of, um, what's the name of the, what's the name of the female actress in that? Well, I don't remember. Uh, no, I can't remember. Um, so yeah, she, so the main she's got to like entire. She was in the main character in the first film. Yeah, yeah. And she's I really likable, and she was sort of like of that era. She's really likable, and she's you know she's good. And then in the second film, it reveals that she's a stripper, and then she has to do like entire scenes with black tape over her nipples. And then the camera, she's sort of like on all fours, and the camera sort of like really looms in from behind her. And you go, was she aware that they were filming her like that? <laughs> while they're doing because it's all handheld do you know what i mean yeah it's not like, yeah, yeah. they it's don't have these, sort of shots set up and going it's big camera setups. and so it's and so it was like oh like it was we like i loved the first one and then the second one starts and i guess they're just trying to push the boundaries and be even more edgy and like mm. add loads of it's like an exploitation film so it's like, there's loads of sex and and for, it's just do you know what i mean it's like not mm. to get all american on it but it was the sex that was the most but it wasn't the fact that there's sex and nudity in it. It was the fact that it felt like, I know it's meant to be an exploitation film, but it did actually feel exploitative. Yeah. So. Well, the first one has that sex scene, doesn't it, at the racetrack, but it's played for laughs. It is played for kind laughs. Of, um, that's what's funny line. about it. It yeah. is a fine, there is a fine line in that, though. Because yeah. It is sort of like, um, there is a moment where they explicitly let you know that it's not a rape, and you go, right. Okay, I can enjoy the f film now. Right, right, okay. I there's like this moment time, where she, well, he's he's trying to have sex with his girlfriend in public, and she's resisting, and uh, and then there's a moment where she goes, Shh, then she's all up for it, and she gets taken over and by lust, and you know who can resist Jason Statham? But um, uh, yeah, there is sort of like a moment where it's kind of like. Oh, is this going the way I think it's going? Because he's a real bad guy. And then um, Amy Smart. Amy Smart, yeah, she is good. She is good. She's really great. She's really like likable and brilliant. Oh yeah, she was in Road Trip and Just Friends and Starsky and Hutch. And I don't remember in Starship Troopers, but she was in that also. Um, uh, yeah, right. She's in loads of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so we didn't really get through. But anyway, the other thing that we watched was, um, hmm, what was it called? Oh, um, uh, ba -ba -ba -da -ba, Zodiac. Watch Zodiac. <laughs> Some good old um, David Fincher. It's I hadn't seen Zodiac until fairly recently. Whatever. No, I hadn't seen it. And, I, uh, I, I lived with a guy at, at uni and maybe around the same, I can't remember when it came out, 2006 or something like that. Hmm. And um, a massive David Fincher fan. And I'm kind of like, I'm of the belief that like every other David Fincher film is amazing. But then, the, you know, the odd numbers are 
fine and then the even numbers are just like oh my god uh so you know alien three okay fight club at seven amazing the game is okay fight club oh incredible um panic room it's all right benjamin button the most amazing film ever made um <laughs> i haven't seen benjamin button but it works to a certain point um uh and i uh, yeah i i say jack is um like it feels like a 70s sort of all the yeah that's what's nice about it yeah um, I feel like it's one that's gained a reputation. I don't remember people being as into it as they seem to be now when it came out. But I know people now where it's like in their top favourite films and you go, really? And that's sort of what inspired me to watch it. Like, oh, this has kind of passed me by then. And I really liked it. And I sort of feel like, oh, it's probably the kind of film if I see it, like the next time I see it, it will probably really fall into place for me and be like, it is brilliant. I liked it a lot. But like I feel like I reckon it probably takes a couple of watches before you get sucked in. I, I did I did enjoy it. No, I, I I I like it. I think it's I think it is good, but also because of the amount of TV stuff that's around now, it feels a little bit maybe disposable. And also he followed it up with his um serial killer TV show, didn't mm. he? Um David Finch. Mindhunter. Minds was it Mindhunter? That sounds yeah. like mind horn um, <laughs> it does it, and i saw that recently as well and i think that's all right i wasn't kind of i wasn't as enamored with it as a lot of people are i know but I, I, again i enjoyed it the tv, the TV, yeah, the TV series i found it very watchable but i wasn't like bowled over by it it has a sort of um what i kind of think of, i don't mean this is a um as a negative either just stylistically it feels almost old-fashioned to me like it feels a bit um like network tv ish um than a lot of stuff does i find yeah, it right. like a bit it's a, it feels quite formula like a bit like yeah it just feels quite old-fashioned there's well, a couple I, of cops or fbi guys going and interviewing serial killer it feels a bit like yeah it's like a, yeah i don't mean that in a negative way just in a kind of it doesn't feel like a lot of sort of netflixy stuff does now on that kind of modern era tv it feels kind of i, I think it's said that I think it's that that crossover after Breaking Bad, but before a lot of other stuff, where it's right. kind of like, um, it, you know, it's older than you, it's not older than you think. It's like four, four or five years old by now, mm. but it's kind of like, um, I mean, Netflix has exploded in the last five years, mm. and uh, and uh, I I think it's like one of those shows where it's before there's like a blueprint of this is how you make a modern TV series. It's kind of like there's still one foot in, oh, let's do it like they used to do it. Um, and I think it probably lends itself to the to the show because it's a period. But, yeah, I thought there's a couple of bits that I really um, like. So you're like being a film detective and you're watching it. And there's mm. a bit in the lobby of um, of the cinema mm. and they're, they're meant to be in the cinema watching Dirty Harry. And so they show a clip, but it's not a clip with Clint Eastwood in it. It's uh, it's Scorpio. Yeah. So it's a clip with Scorpio in the um, in the cinema, and they're all watching Dirty Harry because Dirty Harry was based on the Zodiac. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, murders. yeah. And so the cops have been trying to solve this case for so long 
that they've all gone to the cinema and Dirty Harry is out and Dirty Harry is a movie that's based on the case that they're working on. And Dirty Harry is this no-nonsense cop that's going around solving stuff with a gun. And they're all sat there going, oh, God, why can't we? We think we know who it is, but we've got to go through all this red tape. And um, uh, and they're sat in the cinema, but there's the, the, the footage they're using is not of Clint Eastwood. And then they come out in the lobby and there's like um um mark uh ruffalo he walks past this marquee stand of um clint eastwood as dirty harry but the way the camera is angled they literally just cut his head off and it's just dirty harry's body from the neck down with a gun and it says dirty harry on it but they go past it and then there's a poster for dirty harry which looks like the famous 1970s poster for Dirty Harry, but they've sort of like photoshopped Clint Eastwood's face out of it. And then you look at it and you kind of like go, Clint Eastwood didn't give them permission to use his face. How funny. And you go, that's, but like you watch it and you can just see the art department at work going like, right, can't use his face. And the way that they, like the fact that they frame the camera so that it just cuts his head off. It's like it could be anyone's body doing a Dirty Harry pose. And he just cut his head. And I just was like, wow, I wonder why he didn't give him permission yeah, to use that his... that does seem his, weird. Because it would have cost them loads of money, I guess. And so then, then it goes like, oh, well, this film was like low budget. And then you've got um, Mark Ruffalo uh, is in the lobby of the cinema. So he's watching Dirty Harry and he gets so pissed off that he kind of like gets up and he, he's so frustrated with how his hands are tied. He gets up and he leaves the, the movie. And then you have Jake uh, Gyllenhaal, 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 Gyllenhaal. You have Jake, <laughs> uh, Maggie's, Maggie's brother. And he comes out... And he sees Mark Ruffalo and he runs over to him in the lobby while the movie's still playing. And uh, he comes over and he chats to him and uh, and they meet for the first time. And then a bit later on, um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal introduces, reintroduces himself to Mark Ruffalo. And he says, oh, I, I met you at the cinema once. And Mark Ruffalo doesn't remember. And you go... You were watching Dirty Harry and Mark Ruffalo walked out early because he was so frustrated and you chatted to him in the lobby while he was... uh, He'll remember that. He'll remember it as soon as you give him any extra details other than I bumped into you once at the cinema. And you're just sort of like shouting at the screen, like going, you've got... Like, just say the information that we know. (laughs) Like, he would remember going to see Dirty Harry. It's a film based on the case that he's been working on. And he'll remember getting so pissed off with it that he had to get up and leave. And you remember that because you were at the cinema and you ran up to him and you 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 found your opportunity to start a conversation with him. I just found that very sort of um, so it's not a perfect film, I'd say. Right, I'd be, I, you know, it feels like I will take an opportunity to watch it again because I feel like there will be a point with it. I think where I'm like, oh, I do love it actually, I do love it. And also a very similar film, Jake Gyllenhaal film, tonally, which came out. A similar sort of time was that Nightcrawler. Did you ever see that? That's amazing. It's amazing, and that that I got straight away. Which is the other one that people seem to talk about, like like great Jake Gyllenhaal films. No, and go, no. Oh no, that is, a, and I got it straight away. I went, love this. Nightcrawler's Nightcrawler's legitimately good. Hmm. You know, um, uh, we've got to play the song. Um, yeah, we'll do. 
uh, it's one of those things that I don't know about it's sort of like I always get sort of like there was there was this moment when Jake Gyllenhaal was brand new on the scene and it was just like oh god he's sort of like he's our age and he's brand new and he's in all of these blockbusters and you kind of like go oh god I mean this guy it's sort of like uh you know you go okay how how does how how do you become kind of a Hollywood icon overnight like that yeah and then I watch City Slickers and he's the little boy he's Billy Crystal oh, yes son. yeah he is and City Slickers and you go oh he was always famous yeah. and then and then you do like a minor i am you know a minor google and then you go like oh paul newman taught him how to drive yeah and you kind of like go paul newman being one of the most famous drivers in hollywood um naturally gifted behind yeah. the wheel he you know like the, in terms of driving paul New- you don't get much more famous yeah. than driving and then aren't his parents in showbiz as well i think and it, it's silly but it just made me feel like oh it's all right that i haven't achieved that much <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh he, he was born into it as far i did find it weird that he went from being the nerdy kid in donnie darko to being sort of heartthrob kind of big star within like a couple of years i think everyone was sick in their mouth a bit when they saw the first uh pictures for prince of persia and they're yes. like oh no what's he done <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, right, play, play a song and then, yeah. um, and then let's uh, keep That's talking. Let's keep talking, I guess. We'll just keep talking until the world ends, guys. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're back. Sorry, I was just falling through the air and landing on my computer chair. Uh, <laughs> just in time. I've just what a lovely a... bit of, uh, what a lovely flight of fancy. Yeah, I just went for a little uh, fly around the block and uh, just landed back in time uh, to uh, host the show <laughs> with my um, uh, assistant, Mr. Daniel Metcalf. So, so... got what? I was just about to say, I was just as we were talking about uh, um, uh, Jason Statham. Funnily enough, I was guested on a podcast last week that was called "Unequal Sequel," which is about sequels. Oh yeah, I I I got a feeling that I got a message from them about something. Yeah, go on. Um, yeah, it's fun. It's fun to do. And funnily enough, on that I was talking about Robert Rodriguez because of Desperado. And it came up talking about Jason Statham. And one of the things that came up was a thing that I remember from the time was that there was a rumor at the time that Jason Statham is the same character in the transporter as he is in at the end of Collateral. The, um, he is, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think it's a rumor. He's dressed up as Frank or whatever he is from Transporter, Frank Transporter. <laughs> and uh, there's a bit in it's at the end. I think it's in the. I think it's at the beginning, isn't it? When there's some sort of Tom Cruise or Jamie Fox brushes past Jason Statham in an airport. Right. We talked about this last week. No, we talked about it. We talked about it either on air or off air. No, I'd remember. I'm sure. Maybe I'm. But well, isn't there also that thing where 
Jason Statham. I think he's meant to be the same character in the Fast and the Furious movies as he is in the Italian Job remake as well. I think they've made reference to. These are films that I've not seen anymore. No, I haven't. But I suppose that The Italian Job was... um, Did Italian Job get made after The Fast and the Furious became a hit? Uh, Possibly. And then they went, oh, what property have we got with cars that we can make that's got name recognition? Hmm. We'll do The Fast and the Furious. Oh, we'll do uh, The Italian Job. And then it was like, right. And there was a sequel, right, called... what? What's the sequel called? The Brazilian Job. No, it's meant to happen, but it never happened. It, it was like uh, it was one of those things that was in production, and then I think never, never made it. Oh right, I th- yeah, because I thought it, maybe it was the sequel to a film that I never saw. Like yeah. I never saw the original, so I didn't have really any interest in watching. I saw the original, seen the Italian Job. Sure. Just haven't seen the Italian Job. Just haven't seen the Italian Job. I'm there working with Ridley. I said, <laughs> Ridley, what's going on? I've got a bloody, I've got a, I've got a bloody insect bursting out of my chest. <laughs> um, R.I.P. R.I.P. Not a bad one though. Not bad. Not, no, not pretty not good. Bad. I got it. Not, I got it immediately. Not a bad guest that we've uh, just had. Yeah, popping his head through the door. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, Ridley. So um, uh, yeah. Anyway, right. So right. Jason says it. So yeah. Um, I I I. I believe that he is the transporter in Collateral. Yeah. But then I was also sort of like, what if he's Crank? In what? I, yeah, in, 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 in Collateral. Yeah. I just think, <laughs> I, um, I, 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 I absolutely bloody love Jason Statham. I think he is great. And I feel like a sense, in a really good way, a sense of national pride every time I, I do. Every but time even I see him It's in funny that even something like The Meg which plays almost like um which i guess on paper is quite sort of stereotypical by the numbers big shark movie and yet his addition makes it seem like this is all kind of ironic and all a bit like i know what it is it all feels like he's doing something him being in the cast makes it sort of does escalate the film a bit to being something like it's actually a much better film yeah it's a much better film than you think it is. Now, the book The Meg is great, right? There's a series of books called The Meg, but the original The Meg uh, starts off in prehistoric times and there's some T-Rexes fighting each other on the beach. And, okay. they're, fight- and they're fighting on a beach and then a megalodon jumps out of the water and eats a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And it must have been written about the same time <laughs> as Jurassic Park. So he's read Jurassic Park and he's gone, I'm going to write one of these, but I'm going to just literally, which is weird because in the, in the Spielberg thing, it's like you go, I've got a great white shark, I've got a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And then it goes back to, oh, just a bigger shark then. If I'm going to be, like in Jurassic World, they've got a shark that whatever the... It's not a megalodon, whatever the thing in the water tank in Jurassic World. Yeah. It jumps out and it bites a great white shark. And the joke is, you know, that's a great white shark. And it's all sort of Spielberging because it's like, uh, it's, a, it's a great white shark from Jaws. And then you've got like the, uh, the marketing campaign for the Meg where you've got a great white shark from Jaws and then it's got the megalodon that's about to eat the great white shark from Jaws. And you kind of like go, oh, wow, the megalodon's really huge. The book is just, it starts off like that and then it's just really like, um, uh, 
not tongue in cheek. It's like really stereotypical macho stuff. Right. Um, we've got like this professor anti-hero who's great with weapons, who's sort of like an expert at the at the Mariana Trench, and um, he like he knows everything. He's the smartest man in the room. He's the tallest man in the room. He can handle his alcohol, and he can you know. Uh, punch a man in the face and it's like he can wear an equally at home in a tuxedo or a swimsuit it's kind of like right sure um so they're sort of like trashy cheesy sort of books um and the i hear lots of people saying oh yeah the meg when that first trailer for the meg came out where it was they played somewhere beyond the sea the music somewhere beyond the sea was playing and then there's Jason Statham in this tiny little um, submarine, uh, one-man submarine, and then the, the shark goes past him. He just goes, he's a megalodon. Yeah. And you kind of like go, yes, this is the movie. <laughs> I went to see it with um, uh, Ramesh, Ramesh and Yasmin from uh, Reluctant Landlord. <laughs> and um, we like while we were filming Reluctant Landlord... Um, Wow, really loud playing going outside my window. While we were filming The Reluctant Landlord, um, the trailer came out and I showed like Romesh and we were like, oh my God, this looks amazing. We all went to see it. Never really chatted about it after we saw it. It was sort of like one of them films where you kind of like, uh, it's not quite as crazy as what they wanted. It's a very deeply compromised, like being a film detective as I am now. It's one of those very deeply compromised movies where half the money came from China. And so uh, you have these, um, you know, uh, as, a, as a nation, uh, China has very different sensibilities to um, America when it comes to like um, telling, uh, telling stories. And so sort of like Star Wars doesn't really work in China because they don't really do movies involving um, stories involving ghosts and ghost stories aren't popular in which is weird because i do feel like there are chinese ghost stories but um but it's like one of those things where you kind of like go all oh, right so things that work here don't work here yeah and so when there's a co-production like the meg was you've kind of got these two kind of sensibilities that are pulling at each other john turtletab made it and he did the national treasure movies which is sort of like Indiana Jones light action adventure kids movies that um, that could have probably done with being a little bit more gritty, but um, they're 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 not amazing movies, but they're like these Disney live action. Oh, and what they what they are, which the Meg is as well, is that they're formulaic in a kind of. It's like yeah, yeah, I know how to, I know what that film is. Right, you try to mean you can kind of go yeah, yeah, I know what what the tone is of this film, and I know that. The Meg, the Meg does have sort of like flourishes where you go, ah, oh, where you can kind of like see a better film in there. But I think the final film is so compromised and ironically toothless that you kind you of... You are totally right, actually. That, that, uh, the Meg is, is that exactly. It's not, it's never, it never quite lived up to its own hype. But I don't want, everyone I don't... went to see it. I don't want to be the guy that comes along and says the Meg's rubbish. No. Because but, some people, I think some people genuinely think the Meg is absolutely mm -hmm. incredible. But what I would say is you're lying to yourself because yeah. you are seeing the film that you want it to be. Right? Yes, the film exactly. That it is. Did you see who's doing the second one? 
Well, Jason Statham was really pissed off because he signed on to a hard R shark, giant shark movie. And then um, because of all the behind the scenes stuff, it got turned into kind of like a PG-13 um, Chinese co-pro where it was kind of like, right, well, we're not going to have too much blood and guts and gore. And there's going to, you know, there's a very sincere subplot that's going on where Jason Statham falls in love with uh, a woman and he's got like an ex-wife. And the way that that whole dynamic goes is everyone is absolutely, you know, he's got an ex-wife that's on this underwater rig and he goes down there and he meets this new woman and he has this very sort of like sincere relationship with this new woman, but they sort of play it for laughs, but it's kind of like the way that, um, the, the way that it, it, it comes across is, it's just very awkwardly done. And then uh, his ex-wife seems to be absolutely fine with the fact that he's got this, and there's no... Um, conflict. Uh, no conflict whatsoever. There's no conflict in, you know, everyone seems to be absolutely all right. Even Rain Wilson, who's the bad guy, is sort of like, he's only a little bit bad. Yes, yeah. He's sort of like he's uh, he's actually he's more likeable. of a fool, isn't he? He's kind of a bit of a he's a bit of a fool. Like he's kind of like he's a bit silly and a bit kind of like okay, yeah, yeah. Got it's, it. it's it's odd casting. It's sort of like out of it's sort of like well, what about Rain Wilson? And you kind of like go really for the main bad guy. Okay, well, and he's good in it, but it's sort of like he's not really a bad guy. He's a bit shady, and then he gets sort of like this death scene, and you kind of like go yeah, but it's sort of like a bit of a disappointing death scene and they, they you know you see sort of like this bloodless severed hand and it's kind of like oh right that's literally you're pushing it as far as you can go with that mm. that's like your big death scene and that's as bad as it gets and it's kind of like if you're gonna do a film called the meg it's got to be like piranha 3d right yeah, it's got to yeah. be just like well, if you're going to put Jason Statham in it, it's got to be absolutely insane, and it wasn't really. Yeah, the Meg Two is being done by Ben Wheatley. <laughs> it's a kind of an interesting choice for, and I think actually that's almost, I guess, retrospectively what? reflects back on the first one where you go, "What a weird choice." A field uh, in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in the what? Meg Two, which makes you think. I think you go, "Oh, well, great, that'll be mad," but you go, "Actually, you're right. The first one isn't that mad." <laughs> I mean, it's a, it, it's more like uh, Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider Two, yeah, than, than Crank. You yes, know? yeah. If it's Crank meets Jaws. You go, yes, absolutely. Even if it's Transporter meets Jaws, you go, oh wow. But it's not. It's like this. It's like Cool Runnings. Didn't John Turtle tab do, do Cool Runnings? I think he did. I think so he did. It's, it's like Cool Runnings meets Jaws. <laughs> only it's like really sort of like. You leave, it's all family friendly, but it doesn't, it's like, although I I prefer, I like Cool Runnings and The Meg, <laughs> I just feel like, I, it's so weird that I watched another film, Great White. Um, it's just so unbelievably weird that there's Jaws and then there's basically no other good shark movies. Well, no, no, but I think what's, what I was about to say was it was interesting that in the light of Jaws, but I think the book Jaws, the Peter Benchley book, more than the film there were all those kind of airport novels weren't they some of which got adapted into jaws ripoffs orca. off the back of her yeah orca uh the deep and some of them came out as like 
Jaws ripoffs off the back of Jaws. And in, I think in my head, I was thinking that about um, wasn't the, deep the Meg. Peter wasn't the deep Peter Benchley? Oh, it's also, yeah, I think that is also Peter Benchley, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but then I was thinking, oh, yeah, the Meg book, that would have come out a long time after Jaws did. But you're right, it's probably uh, off the back of... Jurassic Park rather than Jaws. I think it's off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. It starts with Tyrannosaurus Rex yeah. is fighting, and then they go, well, what about a prehistoric shark? Yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's a good idea. But, um, yeah, but in terms of shark movies, there's literally, there's Jaws, and then probably the, you know, there's Jaws 2, <laughs> which is, which is, or which, <laughs> do you know what? The first half of Jaws 2 is much better than the second half of Jaws 2. Mm. The Jaws, you know, when it's just kids on boats, it's kind of like, I don't like these kids. And I, I don't yeah. relate to these kids. And it's almost like you, the people that have made this film, have forgotten that the second half of Jaws is three men on a boat getting to know each other. Mm. Whereas the second half of Jaws 2 is a bunch of kids that you don't care and you just care about and you're just waiting for them to get eaten by a shark. And it's kind of like, that's the opposite of what Jaws is. Mm. You've got yeah. all of that stuff in the first half, and then it becomes like, and I don't know what the solution to that is. I'm just say, saying that Jaws is like a, a perfect film. But what was the one that I watched? Uh, the Shallows. That out of out of all of the shark movies, and I don't mean sort of like Jaws knockoffs. I mean films that have a shark in them. Mm -hmm. Great White is awful. Uh, Fifty-seven feet down or whatever it is uh meters down that's oh, i think that's what i was thinking the shallows was that's not that's not great but it's kind of like um it's a nice idea that, that it's it's not trying to be jaws it's someone in a cage and the cage gets stuck and then in between them and the boat is loads of sharks and it's kind of what what do you do but the shallows is um uh, really tense. Uh, it's really kind of like you've got one actress in it, and she's is that the one where she just goes overboard and she can't get back on? No, that is um, I can't remember what that is. Uh, Shallows is about a surfer, and then she's stuck on like a rock, and she's injured, and um, she can't get back to the uh, beach because the sharks in between her and it's brilliant. Like it's tense and all of that stuff, but it's not like I just don't understand. So when you see the Meg and you kind of like go, well, why is it? You kind of can't do something classy like Jaws. Mm. You've got to go like, this is trash. So we're going to make something trashy. Yeah. I think they, as didn't. Well, it, they I guess, didn't. They didn't do it. It's not yeah. trashy enough. And it's that crossover, isn't it? Of that time where I guess Jaws is still new Hollywood. So he's still making like, like Close Encounters is Spielberg still kind of making a seventies movie. He's not making the movies that would come off the back of Jaws. Yeah. So he's making, um, uh, you've got a bit of spectacle and it's sort of a monster movie, but it's not. And um, he's not really pushing it. I think he's worrying a little bit to, you know, he's worrying while he's making Jaws about breaking believability. So he's trying to, he's pushing the limits of what's believable um the size of the shark etc but he's sort of like trying to keep it relatively grounded and then it becomes like a character study which is a very 70s thing mm. you know um whereas 
Oh well, there's no there's no comparison. I just think people are lying to themselves if they think that. Yeah. Uh, before we get onto fan mail, just want to say quickly that we are now number seventy nine in Guyana and one hundred and sixty six in New Zealand. Seventy nine in Guyana and one hundred and sixty six in New Zealand. No word yet as where we are in Malta this week, but nah. um, I think it's. I think that's all right. I think it's all right. So, I mean, I don't think anyone can be in any doubt that we have delivered another uh, fine example of fan club. I did I actually, that... I did actually want to talk about the Departed a little bit, but we, we've run out of time. But I started rewatching the Departed after Zodiac because it's oh, yeah, like yeah. men in a movie acting yes. in a three-hour movie. I think I could be up for that uh, next time because the Departed is. It's one of those films that without meaning to, which is a good sign of a good film, I reckon I've watched five or six times since it came out. Oh, I thought it was shit. Oh, really? I saw it at the cinema and I loved it. And I was watching it again. I was like, oh, I'm sort of embarrassed that we're watching this now. There's so many bits where you like go, ooh. But we'll talk about that another time. Let's talk about it another time. Okay. Um, here he is. The man, the myth. It's Brian Johnson. Here, Nick, Nathaniel. George Metcalf. Natalie, Irene, Brian and Christopher. Brian, that's me. I'm enjoying your show from Marbella. I was thinking you often talk about boot food, but not drink. I mean, it's terrible. It's all over the place today, Brian. (laughs) Haven't, Haven't spoken out loud in a while. What is your favorite drink? I must admit, I'm a big fan of spirits. I don't know. I don't know if this makes me an alcoholic. Absolutely. But what do you, what do you drink on a night out? Cheers, Philippe. Um, I don't drink anymore, so I drink, well, at the moment, uh, so I drink Diet Coke on a night out. But my favourite drink is Pepsi Max Cherry. Well, I've been enjoying recently, after a while of not really having it, um, an Aspel Cider, if it is on tap. I've quite been enjoying it. An Aspel cider. It's very sweet, isn't it? It is very sweet. Yeah, I do like that. I do like it. I do like it. Hello! This is how it's written. Hello, boys! I've just stumbled into your podcast and I love it. Hmm. I really like the fact that you are charting in a different place every week. Yeah, we do too. We love that. I'm currently on holiday in Greece and I'm working really hard to make you chart over here. So I'm telling all my friends. Well, not really my friends, but all the people I'm meeting in the island I'm at. I was just wondering if you had any Greek related film suggestions for me. Thanks, Emily. Uh, Shirley Valentine, is that in Greece or is that uh, in... There's, um, um, is it called Dog... Dogtooth? The guy that's, uh, uh, the... Yorgos Lanthimos, who did The Favourite. That film, uh, Dogtooth, is very funny and weird and weird, but it's well worth well worth your time. I'm pretty sure that is uh, made in Greece. And also, obviously, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yeah. Um, hey, Nick and Nat, I recently... And obviously, Jason and the Argonauts. Hey, Nick and Nat, I recently finished watching Gary Gennetti, The Prince. What a waste of a talented cast. How did any of them agree to take part in this? Michael. I don't know what any of that is. I don't know what any of that is, Gary, uh, uh, Michael, Michael, but you seem to have missed the point of fan club. Here we talk about stuff that we like. Yeah. Actually, can I change my answer to Jason and the Argonauts? Sure. Cheers. 
Um, Imagine Jason Statham and, and the Argonauts. Yeah, we've just been told that uh, uh, Shirley Valentine is set in Greece. So that's it. Uh, is it is? Greece, yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, I thought it was. Yeah. So <laughs> so man, imagine Shirley Valentine and the Argonauts. <laughs> she goes out there to sort of get over her, uh, her husband. Yeah. And she ends up fighting skeletons and a gorgon. I'm getting them mixed up. It's not Clash of the Titans, is it? Uh, Jason is and that... the Argonauts is the skeletons and uh, Yeah, yeah. Clash of the Titans. It's it's the Gorgon Medusa. Yeah, yeah. Harry Hamlin, isn't it? Harry Hamlin, Clash of the Titans. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Should we play song? I mean, this is a lackluster. We've got. I mean, the energy is well done. No, but we were on it for a second. We've just, we've just, we've just let it go. We were. Yeah. You're wearing a um a, a, a color of money t-shirt. Well, it's sort of yeah, because my my friend John Charno, who's a cartoonist, Britain's most isolated cartoonist, is goes by the name on Twitch of Newman Cruz, and on social media, and that's his t-shirt that he does because he's a massive fan of Colour of Money. I thought it was, um, the first Newman I thought of was Rob Newman. And I thought it was going to be Badil underneath. Well, no, I thought, <laughs> what's Rob Newman doing with Tom Cruise? And then I was like, oh, it's fine. Probably probably went for a chicken tikka in uh, <laughs> wherever Tom Cruise is filming at the moment. Um, all right, great. We'll play a song and then we'll get our guest on. He's here. He's here. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're back! We're back, guys! Whoa! And here we are. We are hitting the ground running. And um, we're back live. We're not live. We're pre-recorded. <laughs> I'm in my um, office. It's really like an office. I've really done a really good job with that. And uh, Nathaniel is in his bare-bones washroom and uh we're joined now uh by our guest uh stand-up comedian steen raskopoulos how are you doing hey i'm very well thank you and lovely washroom nathaniel thank you thank you oh. well you've got you've got tons of books you're impressing me with your uh wide reading nathaniel, it's just all props nathaniel, all props anyone can buy a book <laughs> okay I've got I've got tons of books in this room. I just decide not to put them directly behind me, you know. Right. Um, so there you go. But what you do have, Steen, is you've got this wonderful yeah. picture of a greyhound. Is that what it is? Yeah, I think so. It's not mine. I mean, I'm in my partner's study, so this okay. looks much more fancier than what I wanted it to be. Is these are these your partner's books? Yeah, I think I've got two of them up there somewhere, but it's it's amongst <laughs> the clutter now. Oh well. Never mind. Um, well, let's make the best out of this, and um, we'll rattle through. So, Steve, you're doing you're doing your your show um, at the Soho Theatre, aren't you? That's coming up. Yeah, that's right. In two weeks, it's a show that I wrote in hotel quarantine when I went back to Australia earlier this year. I thought, what better way to use my time in isolation than writing a comedy show? And how long was that? Was that two weeks? Two weeks. Yep. Um, the first draft was mostly just characters crying in the shower, wanting to be let out, um, and then kind of had to adjust uh, and realise that wasn't for everybody. That's interesting, that period, though, because I think of, like, writing a show for me takes about four months, yep. but that four months is probably a lot of um, procrastination and not actually doing it. 
But I actually find it quite impressive that I suppose actually if I did sit down for two weeks and I couldn't leave or do anything, maybe I could do it in two weeks. Yeah, and I think because it's my first show in like three years as well. So similar to you, I've been procrastinating for three years whether to do another show. And then I was called one week before I went to Australia by the Sydney Festival, Sydney Comedy Festival director. He's like, hey, you should do a show. I was like, yeah, fair enough. And then <laughs> that's how it all kind of amalgamated. I think sometimes that's um, that's for the best. I, I, I did, um, in 2013, I did a show that I wasn't going to do up until about January, February, March, but until about April, I'd done sort of yeah. like a pilot for something and I'd done a radio show. And I'd felt like I'd done in the first couple of months of that year, I'd done all of the work that I had to do that year in a very concentrated amount of time so that I could do some other stuff later on. And then they were like, no, you've got to do Edinburgh. And so I wrote a show in a short amount of time and it was like, Oh, right. And, and it was a great show. With yeah. some of my best songs and stuff, but like uh, sometimes, you know, when you take when your brain gets sort of like taken by surprise like that, you end up creating something incredible. I think so, and I think with deadlines as well. I'm definitely a person who, if I have a deadline, I write to it. But if I don't, then I will not do anything until I'm Abs- told otherwise. Absolutely, I've done. There's been a couple of instances over the last year where I've had to write a song for a thing, and I've managed to like write the lyrics and produce it and get the song done and I can do it for the thing. But in terms of an album, I've got an album that I haven't done for four years that's yeah. that's waiting to be finished. And it's kind of, I love deadlines. It's been difficult mm. without them, like traditionally, I suppose. Yeah, I just felt like school to, to some degree because you got you got in trouble if you didn't do the work. We're at uni, my first, I was so surprised when I attended university for the first time. Like, if you guys don't do it, you just, you fail. And it's like, what? Yeah, you just fail. We don't care. We're not going to grade. You're just going to you're just going to fail, yeah. and then you have to do the subject again. And you and don't have to turn grade. up, really. No one's yeah. no one's keeping a register. It's just like, oh, well, you don't have to come in. No, for the, first, for the first few weeks, I was like dressed in like a college shirt, thinking everyone's rocking up in like flip flops and things. I'm like, what? You don't have to. Oh, this is great. <laughs> so, how did you feel about that two week deadline? Were you fairly like, yeah, I can do that? Because I think if someone gave me a two-week deadline for a show, I'd have a meltdown. I don't think I could handle it. It wasn't necessarily like two weeks. So like the shows were four weeks after I got out, but I had like a friend's wedding. I had like people to catch up with. And at the time in Australia, in Sydney, where, where I'm from, like there was zero COVID, like genuinely zero COVID. So uh, I could go and do everything and anything. And then when there was a week to go before I was doing the shows, I was like, why am I doing a show when I can literally do anything at any time? Okay, so I feel like I've jumped into the middle of a conversation right now. <laughs> so let's um, let's uh, uh, start at the beginning of the story. Your show is on at uh, the Soho Theatre. It's called Business Dot Never Dot Stops, um, and it's from Thursday the ninth to Saturday, September the eleventh, at nine thirty p.m. at Soho Theatre. Right. So lockdown. You are an Australian comedian. Yes who lives in England. Correct. And you went back to Australia at the beginning of lockdown. Yep. And you were in isolation for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of that, the Sydney Festival said, would you like to do an Edinburgh show? (laughs) Would, (laughs) would Would you like to do a show at the festival? And you went, fuck it, yes, I'll do that. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty um, much. So you spent so you so you spent two because 
So your first lockdown in Australia was two weeks? No, so like you, when you arrive in Australia, you have to do a mandatory right. two-week hotel quarantine. Yeah. Oh, you have to do that in, yeah, you have to do that in France and stuff and Europe. Yeah, right. Okay, right. Yeah. But um, yeah, so when you when you get off the plane, you are escorted by the uh, federal police and the army and you don't have a say where you're going. It's a lottery pick. And wow. And they put your bags on a bus and they tell you to sit down and then you're left on the bus. Or oh, this is my experience. I was left on the bus for 40 minutes. Then someone from the army comes on and going, is anyone a VIP here? And everyone's looking around going like, well, what's a VIP? Like I've done like a couple of shows. And like, no one knows that. <laughs> like, so you're looking around and then they leave. Then everyone's like, well, what's going on? Who's the VIP? And half an hour later, someone goes, are you sure no one's a VIP? I'm looking around. I'm like, man, I, man do I put my hand up? Do I, like, am I going to be that guy? And then they're like, uh, is, it, is anyone called like Mr. Helms here? I'm like, Ed Helms? From hangover where are you Ed? <laughs> and then um they're like no okay and then the army get off five minutes later bus driver gets on then they tap the side of the bus and it just starts driving and you're like okay and everyone's going hey mr bus driver you know what hotel are we staying at and he just like did not look back whatsoever just kept his eyes on the road didn't speak and then after 40 minutes yeah pulled up to the hotel then the army gets you bagged off the bus and they lock you in a room for two weeks did you know that getting on the plane or is this sort of like when you land, this is sort of like news or what? No, knew, knew, knew that was what was going to happen when you get on the plane, but didn't know in terms of the procedure or what hotel, because like some of my friends had done it and they got some absolute garbage hotels and the food was horrible and really bad experiences. When other friends were like, it's probably the best two-week hotel I've ever had in my life. Um, so yeah, just a, just a luck of the draw. And luckily not- I, did, I did get a good hotel. Oh, yeah. It's a little bit like when you land abroad and it's like four o'clock in the morning and then you get on a bus and you don't really know what's going on. And you don't speak the language and lots of other families are getting off the bus and you, you, your family is the last family on the bus. And you're like, going, maybe we should have got off earlier. And it's all very confusing and scary. And then you have uh, a fortnight in paradise yeah. in the Algarve. And I'm not, I'm not a big sports person, Steen, so you'll have to forgive me. But there was some sort of tennis tournament in australia last year it was a big one and apparently when they got there there was loads of people quarantining but the hotel that a lot of the kind of professional tennis players are in it was yeah. like mouse infested and oh, I've, wow. I've, I've i'm i've got a fear of mice and the idea of being locked in a hotel room that you can't even leave that have got mice running around in was yeah, that my tur- nightmare that turned out to be a japanese game show that they sold um <laughs> No, I think that was definitely a thing. And I think it was during the Australian Open and players were like really upset and they turned their mattresses on the side and they were hitting the balls against the mattresses. And like Novak Djokovic came out and said, no, we should all be given an eight bedroom, um, you know, uh, a house with two tennis courts just because they, they're around everywhere in Australia. Um, <laughs> but it was a thing, as, as you said, Nick, like you, you knew when, when you arrived, like you had to do it. Um, and no one was exempt, which I thought was was quite good. Apart from this Helms cat, apparently, whoever yeah. he was, it was it, it wasn't it wasn't me with an ass. Um, <laughs> what um, I'm not a VIP. Um, I, well, I suppose it depends if they listen to fan club or not. Um, so, um, what did it feel like though? Was it did it feel like the future? Did it feel like we're in like a, a dystopian future? And it, it reminds me of, is it the beginning of Escape from L.A. when the police get involved and they start 
turfing everyone out of Los Angeles so they can turn it into a prison. Did it feel exactly like that, Steve? Did it? Exactly like that. I thought, man, I'm in this movie. Um, It was weird because I think in uh, England at the time, everything was still in lockdown. And then once you're on the bus and you just saw people outside of pubs smoking and having drinks and then people at restaurants and in shopping centres, it was that kind of, this is weird. And then, yeah, being in the hotel room, you get served three meals a day and someone knocked on the door and just left it there. But you, I never saw the person. And there'd be times you're like, thank you. And then from a very far distance away, like, you're welcome. So it felt like this myth- mythical kind of person kept dropping off the food all the time, but you never saw them. That's a bit like old boy when he's like in a, in a room and then meals just arrive. And that's so, it, I know it, we've all lived through it. But it's sort of exciting, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I, I just assume that you, so you don't get given a key and they kind of lock you in. So you can open the door to get the food, but the security guards and the federal police strolling the hallway so you don't actually leave your room, um, which is kind of like a prison. Yeah. Um, but it was just, we because uh, I was still in a hotel, I, I, you know, they gave me like four or five towels and I thought, oh, that's that should last me for two weeks. Then my ho- ho- like it just started smelling like the room. I'm like, oh, I wish someone would come clean it. And then I called in and I asked for more sheets and towels. Like, oh yeah, we can absolutely do that for you. Um, I should also say, uh, yeah, I didn't have a, an, an open window with fresh air for two weeks. Um, and I thought my air conditioning was broken uh, for the full two weeks because I tried to turn it on when I arrived. It didn't work. And then on the last day when I was let out, I was like, oh, I may as well just hit power and it turned on. Um, oh, really? Yeah, um, I was not happy. Do you know, <laughs> I didn't have the internet for five months during the first, during last year, 2020. Wow. I, d- I didn't have Sky TV, because well, I'm with Sky. I didn't have Fine. Sky TV, which didn't have, so I didn't have any TV. Um, I can't remember how I was surviving. I think I was just DVDs. And you're, you're going through bo- your boxes of DVDs, weren't you? Yeah, right. Okay. And then it was literally just like, oh, um, I just had to reset the box. And it was, a, it was a, it was a three minute job, and it went on for five months, five months. So I, I'm, I'm a cunt just like you, mate. Um, but um, uh, okay, right. So this is so you, you, you. So that's when you wrote, that's when you wrote your show. Yeah. Now that's really interesting because um, a lot of people have written stuff during uh, the pandemic and during lockdown, um, and I think that as comedians, we've all sort of like been discussing or at least thinking about what sort of show we want to write when we get back from this. Is it going to be a show that's all about lockdown? Is it going to be a show about the pandemic? Is it going to be, what, what, what is it? Is it going to be a show that we'd been writing before? Um, are we just going to pick up where we left off? Uh, I don't think anybody also, like, really... What, what do audiences want? What do audiences mm. want? Do we want 3,000 up in Edinburgh? Do we want 3,000 shows all about the pandemic? And I've been like, no, absolutely not. And so I've been kind of like writing stuff. To, I just think it's a really interesting thing that we all have to do. But when you went there, it was it was right at the start. It was mm. just two weeks. So it's not like you're writing a show about your pandemic experience. It's like, right, well, I'm going to write a show. It's, it's kind of like almost like a unique kind of yeah. approach right and it was nice because at that time sydney hadn't even experienced a lockdown so if i came here going you guys know what it's like to be you know stuck in your houses for months like they they didn't yeah. um and also i think i think so many people were going to do and tell those jokes and stories and i don't think i would have done anything better than them so i kind of just left it and um yeah my show has nothing to do with the pandemic it's got nothing to do with 
anything that's taken place. It's just, yeah. And how it, does that play? Do, do people like go, well, hang on a minute, what about the pandemic? Or do people, do you know what I mean? It's like kind of, it's it happened to everyone. So do we even need to mention it? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if you have to mention it. I do say that I watched a lot of, uh, you know, TV and movies like everyone else did during that time. And it kind of like, I really got into Scandinavian detective kind of series. And um, in my show, I do like a three runner of like a, a Scandi kind of cop where I get a member for the audience to play like my detective. But even then, like, because I, I do so much or have done so much audience participation in the past, that was that, that was the challenge for me. Like, or oh, how can I do it? That's safe um, <laughs> and that people would feel comfortable coming up to do knowing mm. I can't be too close to them or, you know, um, mm. them kind of speaking or, you know, some people have different vibes and I, I guess still do especially in London, coming out to, to theatre again, even though it's, it's open. So it's just, yeah, figuring out a way for people to feel comfortable with that. The mm. other thing that strikes me about sitting in a hotel room and writing a show for two weeks is that um, I probably, when I, when I write shows, I would never sit down in a room and write it for two weeks and then when I finished it, get up on stage and try it. I would, yeah. I would literally, if I've got a if I've got a preview in the evening, I'll make some notes and I'll go through all of the notes that, because I make notes all the time mm. and I'll go through all of the notes and all the ones that are worth saying. And then I'll kind of, I won't write anything, but I'll go on stage and I'll try out all of the notes because there'll be things, a note that is relating to something that has happened or an idea that I have had mm. that I've written it in my head already. So I just need a little note to jog my memory to be able to say what I'm, what it is I'm going to say and that's how I'll write it and then I'll say it enough times on stage that it becomes the thing and then that's how I do it so if I was to sit down in a room for two weeks and write a show I could do that I think I would enjoy that but it'd be a completely different process without testing material every night as I wrote yeah, right. it so how was it for you uh, I did one not even a preview I did one kind of uh, gave away like 30 kind of free tickets um, to do a small kind of taster of, of as exactly as you said, just no narrative or arc or, you know, everything is out of order. Essentially like just a jigsaw puzzle to see like if any of the puzzles kind of fit in the thing I was trying to make. And then opening night was the first time I did it in front of pretty much anyone. Um, but I guess, I don't know. I, I think coming here, you do so many previews and um, testing out ideas kind of thing where I think back home, you kind of run it in at festivals. And by the time Sydney Comedy Festival comes around, I would have done the show maybe 30, 40 times at like Brisbane and Melbourne. So when it hits Sydney, it's kind of pretty much ready where this was the opposite where I started at the very, very, very beginning at Sydney. And which is always so scary because like that's, that's my hometown. That's where I get my biggest audiences from. So to do an opening night in front of, you know, five, 500, 550 people is not the way I would have liked to have done it. And um, are you are you hitting the ground running? Or I think I think part of the problem over here was like Edinburgh used to be um, a, like a much smaller affair where mm. comedians would scrape together whatever material they'd go out and they'd do it for a month and then by the end of it they'd have a show that they could tour. And now it's like you get reviewed on day one. So whereas Edinburgh was like you have a month of previews basically and then by the end of it you've got a show. Yeah. Um, it's like you've got to have a show. So you've got to do the equivalent of an Edinburgh festival before you go out to Edinburgh. Well, I've never done um, any of the Australian festivals. Um, 
I'm scared of traveling and um, spiders. Um, <laughs> um, so what's sort of like the vibe? Is it a little bit more kind of um, uh, not work in progress, but like, is it a little bit more kind of like uh, you're putting the show together? It's a, it's a brand new show or are people expecting something finished and polished? Uh, it depends which festival, I think. I think with Melbourne and Sydney, like Melbourne especially, would be the, the closest uh, comparison to Edinburgh. So Melbourne's like where you want to do your show kind of fully polished. So that's what's funny when the international acts come to Melbourne, they're taking the Edinburgh show from the previous year. So they're super polished, ready to go. Where Melbourne for the Australian acts, I would say it's the first four or five shows that you're definitely like trying to run into, figure out. And they're all preview kind of low yeah. ticket prices. But by the second week, like it needs to be quite, quite polished hmm. um, because that's how everyone approaches it. So you don't want to be, you know, the person a bit lag behind and, you know, hit your straps in the last week. You've got to try and get that word of mouth and that buzz in that second week for people. To I come. think that's a much better system because even in Edinburgh, however many previews you've done, like I find I don't really have a show until about day four or five. Absolutely. It's still like I'm still mm. like going, you know, something like this, and I'm getting used to a new room. I haven't been previewing in a room in Edinburgh. It's a whole new. I'm dealing with whatever's happening. Absolutely. If there's a loud yeah. show next door or whatever. Then you mentioned that, uh, like the shape of the room, not just like the size of the room, but the shape of the room completely. When I did uh, uh, Keep Hold of the Gold in 2010, I was at the Tron downstairs at the Tron. The sh that room completely dictated what the show was. I didn't have a show on when I did the tech get in. I didn't have a show. Like I did loads of previews. Uh, my voice was going. So I basically cancelled the last week of previews. Didn't have a show. I went up and went, fuck it. I'm not doing Edinburgh again anyway. <laughs> and then when I got in the room, the show came together. And that, that show changed my life. But like it was just being up there in the experience. I think it's like like doing the previews is kind of like you're shopping for like shorts and um, and Bermuda shirts. And do you know what I mean? You're doing all of like your yeah, holiday yeah. shopping. And yeah. then you go up to Edinburgh and you pack it, you pack your bags. And then like the first few days of doing Edinburgh is like unpacking all your bags and seeing what you got. And then you kind of like put it together <laughs> for the show. Mm. But I just, I love that. I love that whole experience of, of doing a show. I wrote theatre for years which was sitting on your own in a room, writing an, writing an hour of theatre and then going out and, and seeing after months what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. And I kind of guess like my approach to comedy is like, I don't want to do that. I want to do it like this. Hmm. Um, that's not a question. <laughs> no, no, that's a, I, I agree with your statement. Uh, that was very similar to my first Edinburgh. I did a show called uh, I'm Wearing Two Suits Because I'm In Business. And in the show, I wore, I wore two suits, but I didn't know what venue I was. Like I got told it was a 70-seater before I arrived. And then it was like this, uh, like a, what do you call it? It was like a sweat box, a 70-seater sweat box um, called the Weeku in Underbelly. Right. And I could not have chosen a hotter room under those lights to a do that show. worse room to wear oh, two suits. Yeah, oh, right. my Lord. And then it became that thing. Exactly. It said, like, it became part of the show because it was so close with everyone and there was, like, audience participation. Everyone could see how much I was working and sweating. It became part of it. And then after every show, it turned, like, how much kind yeah. of <laughs> milliliters of water can I ring into a bin? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think that, um, you know, I always say that, uh, most comedians um, try and make you see how easy it is. You know, they make they try and you they try and show you kind of like look how seamless this comedy is that I'm doing, 
and I'm like the opposite and I want I want everyone to see exactly how hard it is and how hard I'm working and when you're in one of them little sweat boxes and you're just sweating all over the audience and at the end you're wringing your shirt out and it's just like look how look I've done this for you I want you to know I want you to feel (laughs) guilty on your way out I want you to feel bad at how hard I've worked for you and I want you to appreciate you know what I mean I love that that's part of it oh for sure And, and also like the like the tech safety things beforehand, like in Melbourne, pretty much every venue is like air conditioned and the lights are, you know, way, you know, way above your head. And it's all, you know, there's various different, you know, fire procedures like this, this, this exit. And is like, hey, you can't walk here because you're going to crack your head on this light. Um, this socket <laughs> doesn't work. Don't plug this into here. Leave it to the tech. There's one way to get out. Um, you have to wait for the audience to get out before you're allowed to leave. And just like, it's, but it's part of it. Like it's, it's exciting. It feels like everyone's in it together where i feel like melbourne and a lot of the other festivals and like no disrespect but it feels like it's it doesn't have that that you know that that vibe that well, uh, i guess you're very rarely actually performing in a theater space in in edinburgh right you're performing in something that was something else a week before edinburgh that they've gone you could kind of make that into a theater space if we put chairs in it if it's got a roof and not always yeah. if it, not always not always if it's got a roof but if it's got a roof it's a venue i always think as an audience member going to see stuff at, at, at edinburgh not that we have to talk about edinburgh but it's on at the moment or it would be or it is i don't know what's happening but you know when you're little and you go and see santa claus and it's at like um it's at like a store and you're going around all of these corners and you're queuing for ages and then you finally go around the corner and it's this little room and there's a guy just up at Santa Claus and you've not seen him before and you kind of like go oh wow that's and that's kind of like what Edinburgh is it's kind of like you don't know it's like everyone's sort of like up for an adventure Mm. and it's kind of like oh I guess this is the venue and I guess this person's going to come out and make the best out of this terrible situation we've all found ourselves in and I love that I love it and also, it's like, hey, I spoke to that guy on the street who had me fly and he's wearing a suit and now he's naked. Now he's covering two- himself in Cheetos. <laughs> now he's wearing two suits. Yeah. Um, okay, so so you had this idea where you're kind of like going to wear two suits and then uh, it, and then um, and then the venue's hot and then it sort of informs the way that the show's going to go. For sure. And then it's like, I need to find a dry cleaner because like I have to share this dressing room with so many other people and my, right. my suit's going to absolutely reek. Um, so, so I ended up just buying like heaps of white T-shirts to wear underneath so I could, you know, try and get uh, as much airspace as I, as, I, as I possibly could. But the end of the show is everyone on stage dancing over my corpse. So <laughs> it, uh, it's a fun way to kind of go. So, but that's not this show, is it? No, is no, it no, that's not this show. No, no, no. Um, uh, so what's this show? Uh, so what's this show not about? I don't really want, I don't, it's difficult because as a comedian, you know what questions you don't really want. Why? But, but what did you end up writing about? If it wasn't, if you're in between, aren't you? You're in between <laughs> real life and locked up life. Yeah, I think the best way to describe it is, is of, because um, my last show was quite, quite personal intense i just wanted to make a really fun show um with like uh sticking to what i what i know to do and that's like character and improv and audience participation 
and everything's kind of linked in terms of a narrative element. Um, so I think that's what I've tried to go back to. And yeah, from from the three shows I did in Sydney, everyone seemed to seem to enjoy it. I think, and yeah, it's only gotten obviously better since I've had more time with it and to rewrite and to perform it. And yeah, and there's a few few cheeky cameos from from people, but um, yeah, it should be. No, I'm really excited to perform it again. To be fair. And if you, if you know you have these improv skills, is that something you know you can lean on, knowing you've got a show you've got to prepare in two weeks? I'm obsessed about this two-week period. I'm just yeah. trying to put myself in the headspace of going, this would terrify me. Is that something in your head you go, oh, I can lean on that? Or do you also, it also sounds that you try and put limits on what you do, right? Yeah, So you're definitely. kind of saying, you, like you said, oh, I'm... I do improv, but I also do a lot of audience participation, but I can't do that this time. Therefore, I have to come up with something else. So there are all these different limitations every show, right, that you're having to like, impose on yourself or that the world's imposing on you. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's a thing of like I still do audience participation in the show, but, you know, stuff where I'd probably, you know, drink water and spit on people. I can't do that anymore. Um, not that I did originally but you know you just have to be a bit more uh health conscious i guess and make it fun for them to feel safe getting up um but with the improv element it's 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 you can never like no matter how many times you think of a situation in terms of how it's going to go someone will always surprise you like in terms of how I construct a character or a sketch or, hey, this is going to be the button and the audience could take it this way, this way, this way, this way. And you know, I think of genuinely like 100 different ways. Usually like the first or second show, someone would do something I completely didn't even think about. And you're like, fuck. And that's what's, I guess, fun because it's the audience kind of doing it for the first time and they have no idea you've put them under the pump and then kind of coming up with a way. And that's a bit more challenging, I think. And that's where, yeah, I, I like to sit in that space of that, not sure how this is going to go, but hopefully we'll find something. Um, I used to do quite a lot of audience participation. And then as the shows went on, that was like the element that I kind of like phased out a little bit because oh. it was just like, it's like one of those things where it's just like, what, what new thing can I do with the audience? Because it's not mm. a show that's all about, I've got like songs to fit in and routines to fit in and jokes and poems and stuff like that. And then audience participation and then it's kind of like you want to have it in a controlled environment where you kind of like go, this is the structure to the audience thing. But mm. also it's not so structured that you're feeding them lines. And so it's sort of, I don't know, it was like one of the most difficult parts to include because um, I felt like I'd sort of like was repeating myself after a few shows. But it's also one of like the most enjoyable bits because you go, I've got, five minutes allocated to audience participation hmm. for this bit uh, and anything can happen within that five minutes um but it's structured so that you can get back into the show hmm. but it's kind of like for you it's like in, in in this long run you know if you're doing kind of like show every day for a month or whatever it's kind of like this little moment in the show where it's kind of like oh this is this is fun for everyone because nobody really knows what's going to happen with this yeah, it's, definitely. I love, I, I love sort of like the freedom of audience participation, um, but it is really difficult. I, you know, I'm not going to say where do you get your ideas from. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a terrible thing. Um, <laughs> but where do you get your? Ideas? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's always that thing of of 
I've always had like a, an idea that, you know, I'm the opposite. If, if I saw myself performing, I would, I would hate it because I hate, I hate audience participation being yeah, an too. audience yeah, member. Yeah, 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 like yeah. I hate it, but I love kind of doing it with people. Um, but I'm never a bully. Like I always try and make the person the star of the scene. Like if there's ever a joke to be had, it's always on me. I'm not yeah. a comic to come out and like rip into someone or give them shit because I don't know. Down, yeah. <laughs> because I don't know. Because I don't know what they've like. You know, they're coming to a show. I don't know what they've been through, what's going on in their life, and also they're paying me money to you know try and yeah. have a bit of fun for an hour. So with with my stuff, it, um, I think people over the years have become more not excited to get on stage but probably more comfortable because they know that it's going to be a, like I think it is a, hopefully it will be like a fun experience it's not going to be something that will embarrass them or, or anything like that you kind of when you do it right it's like they end up being the star yeah the star of the show but like they're the guy you know at the end of I was picked on I say I always avoid the word picked on do you know what I mean? Because I don't see it like that. You start, you're asking them to participate to help you do the show a little bit, you know? Mm. And so at the end, when they're at the bar, they're the person that people go, wow, do you yeah. want a pint? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I always think of it like that. You're kind of like making a star out of someone for that for that show. Oh, for sure. And like, I think the biggest compliment you can get is like, oh, how good was that plant? You're like, absolutely not you can come every night and it'll be, always be a different person like yeah okay yeah sure 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 but you told them to do this or you told them to say that and they're like no absolutely not like they did and made up their own and like why am i fucking talking to you i'm gonna go talk to the star of the show <laughs> you want a pint mate you're like oh man. <laughs> do you have i suppose this is probably true for both of you do you have someone when you're trying to pick someone out of an audience is there like a weird rule like that person is too keen Yes. That person is yeah. not keen. That person is about the right level of yeah. keen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too, too keen, too keen drama kids, shut it down, shut away. Ruins it, yeah. And oh they try God. and um and sorry, you're you're the guest. I'm just <laughs> no, gonna, no, no, I'm no. just I'm just the question was asked to both of us. Yeah. yeah, I know, but I just always do that. I always like talk about well, I do comedy too, and it annoys me when I think <laughs> about it. I'm gonna cringe afterwards. But like um, but yeah, if they're too keen, then they ruin it, right? Yeah, I think it just flips the mood in the audience because the audience is like, why are you trying to like show off or why are you trying to do the thing he's not telling you to do or helping you out? And it just it really fucks with the mood of the show. Well, I found. And then you kind of had to, you know, kind of get them off stage quicker than you anticipated. And mm. it just kind of brings the energy down a bit as well. And people are more upset. Like they keep looking over to the person who fucked the show rather than, you know, yeah. the next sketch or the next kind of character. And if people think they're the plant, then it's oh, ridiculous. Yeah. It's like, why'd you get that guy? Yeah, awful. But then, but then also they can be they can be too keen in a way that's kind of like they're because um, ideally you want them to work with you, mm. and sometimes you get people that are keen that are too eager to help, and sometimes you get people that are keen that are just there because they want to give it back to you, and you're like, I'm not having a go at you. I'm literally, if you do what I'm sort of guiding you through, then you're mm. going to be a hero. But if you don't, if you kind of like try and second guess me the whole time and try and sort of like um, challenge me, then it's kind of like, that's not what I'm, that's not what it's about. Do you know what I mean? 100%. I had a, I, I went, I, I had to get someone out in the audience um, in a show and it was, it was quite, a, it was quite a large venue. I did two nights there and it was quite a large venue. And on the second night, uh, I went over to a corner of the audience and I got someone out. 
and they came on stage and they were just sort of like fucking up everything but like in a really kind of like I think I know what's going on here kind of way and they fucked mm. up everything and it turned out that they were a reviewer no and when I came up to them they hid their notepad so that I didn't know that they were a reviewer and then they pretended that they were just a regular audience member came up on stage uh and then wrote a review about how they got one over on me and it's like well you ruined that bit because yeah. normally nobody liked that bit i didn't enjoy it you didn't enjoy it the audience didn't enjoy it and normally when you're not overthinking it and you're just going along with it everyone loves it i love it you love it the audience loves it you're a hero you get as many drinks as you can drink for the rest of your life <laughs> based on how well this bit oh. goes. I think that's not, but, and then also you go the opposite way where someone's got their arms folded and they're not enjoying it. And what happens then? I'm, I'm sort yeah. of sharing, sharing our <laughs> shared experience. Well, <laughs> well, well, sometimes those people who like, yeah, do not look interested whatsoever, or you just assume they're not enjoying the show because yeah, they have their arms crossed like absolutely smash it. Like one of my favorite things I ever did was in, would have been Edinburgh 2017, I think. And I used to do this sketch was like an office Christmas party. So I used to bring an audience member on stage as like the CEO and just say like how disgraceful <laughs> um, they, they were during the office Christmas party. And like, we've had some complaints from your fellow employees. So I endowed the audience. And I just want you to like, just listen to hear, hear what they have to say. And I'd go into the audience and I'd just get all these different offers. Like, you know, what, what happened to the, you <laughs> that's know, amazing. You know, like, yeah. That's and, amazing. It's like, and it's like, he, you know, he shattered the office pot plant. He, <laughs> an ear. he didn't wash his hands in the bathroom. And you get every night, you get an array of different kind of things. And then you'd come back and, you, and I'd always say, um, well, you know, uh, I want you to think about your choices. Um, and I can't remember how he used to set up, but like, I want you to watch like how, how poorly you behaved um, whilst I show you through interpretive dance. And then like a sound, like a, an, an orchestral kind of like, um, I think it was um, Gravity by Sarah Beret played. Right. And I used to do how they were at the office cruise party, like through interpretive dance and like do everything <laughs> the audience member said. And then I used to sit them back down afterwards and like, I want you to think about your choices. So if you, if you could do it all over again, like you wouldn't shit in the thing, you wouldn't do this, you wouldn't <laughs> drink, you would wash your hands, all kind of stuff. And I'd say, have 10 seconds to think about it. Then afterwards, I'm like, you thought about it? Good. Um, um, and I say, so show me through interpretive dance how you would not have done those things. So they just, <laughs> it's like, a, you know, a call and response to what I did. And, and the time um, when people, yeah, as you said, like the people who are too keen just wouldn't do it. They just keep doing exactly what I did. Like, no, you could, like listen and do it again. They've, they've written their own jokes while you're yeah. talking. Yeah. And everyone, everyone just goes crazy because like as long as you do, like, you know, some form of something, then the mm -hmm. audience goes crazy crazy for it but there was one show in particular um when when you're talking about like the guy with the cross arms it was like this 45 year old guy cross arms didn't look interested the whole show and i kind of went fuck it um i don't know if the show was like going well or not but i said like, fuck it we'll get him up and the whole time he was like you know just kind of listening to me watch me kind of thing and then when i told him interpretive dance he unfolded his arms like stood up slowly unbuttoned the like top two buttons of his shirt and I shit you not, afterwards I spoke to him because it was the best dance. He used to be like a former, um, uh, like classical dancer and ballerina. And it was just like, it was just one of those Edinburgh moments that was just like the highlight of anything I'll ever do. And I'll never be beaten. Like so the, was guy was, the guy was, <laughs> the guy had like the, the most flexibility I've ever seen. Like the emotion he was bringing, like it was just like, he got a standing ovation, right? Like I couldn't have done anything better. Like 
and it was one of those um, nights, Nick, where people were like, it was 100% a plan. Like that, that couldn't, yeah, have, right, yeah, yeah. couldn't have happened. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, there's a, there's a show called uh, One Man, Two Governors over here, which I think James Corden was in. Um, and then it's had loads of other people being the leads. And there's like this bit in it where um, uh, he's on stage uh, and it's in between scenes. And while he's on stage, he notices there's someone in the audience and they're eating a sandwich and they're eating a sandwich. And he starts talking to this guy in the audience that's eating a sandwich. And then it turns out that the sandwich is hummus. And the audience are like, they're losing their mind. The whole audience is losing their mind. And this guy's eating a hummus sandwich. And then it goes up a level. And he's like, oh, my God, that's great. And he rinses this guy in the audience and he takes his sandwich off him and does all this stuff. And then in the interval, uh, the guy doesn't come back and there's an empty seat. And you go, well, he's a plant, right? And they do it every night like clockwork. And it's the set, it's scripted. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And the audience love it. And then the guy's not back. And it's kind of like, it's the sort of thing that you can't risk in a West End show. I think it's like, it's like this 20 minute section, which is meant to feel improvised. And then afterwards, you kind of realise that it wasn't improvised. And they do something similar in the second half. And then they all come up on the, at the end and they all take a bow. Mm. And you're kind of like, you're not even pretending that it was real, you know? Oh, the, the hummus guy comes on stage. Yeah. I can't remember if the hummus guy comes on stage, but the, certainly the woman from the second half of the show, she comes on stage and takes a bow. Oh. And, and I felt like really cheated by it because I was doing stand-up and audience participation at that point. And I said, part of the skill of audience participation and part of the skill of stand-up is making it feel like it's new and fresh yeah. and is happening for the first time. Mm. Actually, stand-up is a script that you're kind of a script that you're kind of like making it feel like it's the first time you thought of it. But audience participation is going with the flow and letting the audience member sort of dictate a little bit. And that's what keeps it fresh and exciting. And mm. that's what makes it interesting when you script it and you fake it, it's sort of, what is the fucking point? You might as well it's, not have it. It's a waste it's of everyone's time. I saw that. I saw that same show and I had exactly the same, uh, like reaction to it it's, because it just felt so hollow and like, Oh, well, and, and I think to the audience, it was a bit like, it was like a magic trick reveal, like, oh, that's how he did it. And it's like, no, but people do this all the time really it's, well. And, also, and it's, it, it's, it's not, like, it's... If you're going to script a bit, script it really good. Don't just make it feel sort of like, oh, it's good for improv. It's good for something that's happening spontaneous, mm. which is the only reason why people like it. When it's fake and everyone knows it's fake, it's kind of like, you may as well have just saved us all 20 minutes and not bothered doing that. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And I think at the, at the end of the show, like I always enjoy when people have seen me maybe on a Thursday night and they speak to the friends on a Saturday night and they're like, oh, how, Sims always What was like, your guy like? Yeah, and it's like, what? We had a girl on this night or this person did this or the offers were this. They're like, oh, what? It changes every night. Um, and I think that's why like you get a, a bit of like a repeat audience to see yeah. if it is a plan of what's going to happen this night. or And and, and then you get like, uh, oh, the person tonight wasn't as good as the person uh, the first time. Or oh, the person tonight was absolutely incredible. You know, mm. it's great. And when you talk about Edinburgh moment or like fringe moment or doing like a festival, it's like, those are the things that you can do. You can go on and you can try and change people's lives by all of the jokes that you've written and, you know, making it into kind of like, um, 
you, you know, it's a it's a it's a one person show. You're on stage. This is your show. You're presenting a show to mm. an audience. They will pay. Their lives will be uh, unrecognizable by the end of the hour, and then they will leave. There are tools that you can use to kind of give people a good time. And when you're up in Edinburgh or a festival, and you can use the audience, and you're in this opportunity to kind of like bring people up and sort of champion them, and take a little bit of the pressure off of you. Mm. You're making you're making like w w once in a lifetime experiences for everyone in that room. It's so not like to be like egomaniacal about it, but like it's really sort of like that's what's exciting about doing those festivals as opposed to doing something um, uh, like One Man Two Governors, where you you don't have the wiggle room to <clears throat> risk it. Yeah, for sure. And also, like it does put the pressure on you of like you have to turn up. Like if you're not uh giving it and being positive and kind of enticing them to play if you're you know too hungover like whatever it is like it, it's on you if you fuck, like if it fucks up it's not necessarily on them unless you do choose a drama student kid who just you know failed all these acting auditions and has come to try and chance it in your show which i've had too many of those as well or they're part of like um a, a theater company that are, that are oh, doing yeah. their own show and then but, they they unzip their hoodie when they come on and take it off and it's their yeah, their promo t shirt right, yeah and they keep turning Which, turning um, the back to the audience the whole time so it just gives it a dates and website and, yeah I mean I think I, I have just been, imagine there's I've someone there's someone there with a notebook going what is it <laughs> there's no one doing it no one doing it man I had someone the, one of my uh, last shows in Edinburgh like at the back you could see their light on their phone was on and I could see them waving to the tech and they were like excuse me like oh, oh. And I, in, you know, you know, you can just see something's mm. happening and it's kind of just taking your focus a bit. And I thought someone had fainted at the back. They're trying to get them out or whatever. And then I, after the show, I asked my tech, like, what was going on? I'm like, oh, no, they were just asking for the Wi-Fi password. Like 15 minutes into the show. Oh, my God. <laughs> and apparently yeah. they, were, they were like part of the company as well, like part of the production company. I was yeah. like, oh, that, that ain't good. That it's ain't funny good. when you're talking about like um... – you know, it's a different show every night, right? Just think Edinburgh is a good place. If you're there all month, there's always that thing at the end of it where you go, oh, man, I didn't see this show or I didn't see that show. And there's my friend's show who I haven't seen and I feel bad. And then there's always a point where, like, there, there are certain shows, though, that, that I also might have seen four times. <laughs> that every yeah. time I've got friends visiting, it's like, we're going to see that show again. That's yeah. what we're doing. And that's it. And, and shows like that are kind of perfect for it because you're getting a slightly different experience every night. But yeah, absolutely. It, but what it also is, is sort of like that, um, that as, a, as a comedian, you can often try and chase your previous show. You can be kind of like, yesterday was great. Let's, mm. let's try and do yesterday. And then it's not as good as yesterday. And you're kind of like frustrated. But whereas when you have that element to it, where it's like, this, this is in the moment, this is now, it's like, you forget about yesterday and every day is a new opportunity to do something exciting, you know? Absolutely. And I think it's that thing of not chasing that high because I think very early on I learned that something that worked the, the night before doesn't work again. And if it was funny because it was like an improv element and everyone was in the room, it's not going to be funny because now you've rewritten that bit as a bit. Um, mm. And I think, yeah, really early on I learned that because I died in the ass like the next show because I just tried to repeat the same joke that, you know, it was spontaneous the night before and everyone's like, what are you doing? You're like, oh, yeah, I just need to just keep yeah, having fun with it. Allow it to be what it is. Mm. 
but so I guess what I would do is I would ask a question and then I would sort of over the period of time I would work out if I say this then this gets a laugh in any context and there mm. are sort of like safety measures that you kind of like build up over the month where you kind of like go yeah and now we've got a structure to this bit of audience improv but you still have like wiggle room but are you like do you just throw everything out every time you obviously know why you've got them up if it's the office christmas party and you're kind of like there's a reason for them to be up there yeah so i think it's have go-to phrases or i think the structure is always there in terms of like the a to b but how i get there or how they get there is up to them um and i think that just keeps it exciting for me most nights that i've got to be on my toes a bit as well um i love this and i love talking to um, other performers, and I have loved talking to you. Um, we, I mean, your show is called Business Dot Never Stops. I just call it Business Never Stops, but there's dots in between it all. Full stops. Steen Raskopoulos, uh, you're on at the Soho Theatre uh, between the 9th and nine till eleven of September. <laughs> um, this this show i'm gonna i'm gonna come and see it i'm really excited about seeing it it sounds brilliant oh, um right this show's called fan club you've got one minute to talk about why you like a league <laughs> of their own <laughs> oh i think it was one of the first vhs tapes that my my mum and dad like recorded on uh uh yeah VHS. Off the tv tape. yeah the madonna gina davis movie yeah that's right and um, it was just one that we just always watched, me and my siblings, and it was just that and Sister Act. Like, they were the only two things that we had. And, yeah, I just uh, – I, I, I loved playing baseball as a kid, so that kind of had that kind of element. And apart from, like, Rookie of the Year or Major League, which was maybe a bit too adult for me at the time. But um, baseball movies. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I just got really heavily involved in baseball movies. <laughs> and about- um, The Mighty Ducks. Uh, what about Field of Dreams then? And um... oh, of course, but I'm talking like as a six-year-old, kind of um, not really understanding. Um, Father and did you son see, dynamics. <laughs> did you see recently, Nick, that they like the New York Yankees and Chicago White Sox played? They built the field of dreams. Yeah, I did see that. I did see that. Um, I didn't watch it. I heard about it, and I I filed it as. I'll go back and I'll look at that. Oh, it was so it, cool. Was it and good? Got, yeah, and I got—I didn't watch obviously the whole game, but I saw like the highlights. And they got Kevin Kevin Costner to walk out. Oh, like, really? Yeah, oh, yeah, I yeah. fucking love Kevin Costner. Yeah, great, <laughs> great. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. He would have thought that was really cool as well. Yeah, and they kind of mic'd him up. I didn't, but you just heard me. Wow, this is this is special. This is. This <laughs> <special>. <laughs> He's such a serious man. I've like through lockdown, I've been watching Kevin Costner interviews. And he's so serious. Do you remember the Wonder Years? As in uh, the TV uh, series? Yeah, 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 yeah. Not not the era in all of our lives, but um, <laughs> the, there was the TV. The girl, the girl that played Winnie uh, has grown up to be like a children's author, and she writes these books that are teaching uh, kids like maths and stuff like that. And Kevin Costner was on a chat show with her, and she was talking about like snot and stuff like that, and like talking about like how to teach kids stuff. And she turns to Kevin Costner and goes, "Do you want to join in?" And he just goes, "No." <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, "Yeah, it's not really your wheelhouse, really." It's not. It's, not yeah. And um, didn't, didn't, didn't the actor who played Marv in uh, Home Alone, he was the narrator? 
Yeah, that's right. Daniel Stern. I think he used to direct it as well. Daniel Stern. Oh, wow. He does like a lot of behind the scenes stuff now. But yeah, it's weird that Daniel Stern was in a really amazing film, if you ever get to see it, called Coupe de Ville. Okay. Which is about three brothers that are trying to take their dad's car across country. It's brilliant. Um, right. Okay. Uh, it's been lovely talking to you. I mean, I feel like that, that hour has gone by so incredibly quickly. Um, we've talked mainly about stand-up comedy. So a lot of our listeners will have found it a slog, but fuck them. Yeah, hopefully. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now what we're going to do is I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel and we are going to play the internationally world famous game, Better or Worse. Okay. 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 Steen. So better or worse is a game where you have to say whether the next person on the list is better or worse than the person before based on my opinions to score points. Oh, shit. Do I know these people? You'll know the people, but you oh, have to no. guess whether I think they're better or worse than the person Oh, I guess your opinion. Exactly. Okay, okay. That takes a bit of pressure. Okay, okay. Oh, absolutely. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Beginning with Michael Fassbender. Michael Fassbender. Okay. Is Michael Keaton better or worse than Michael Fassbender? I think you, Nathaniel, would say better. It is better. Michelle Pfeiffer, better or worse than Michael Keaton? I mean, it's Michelle Pfeiffer. She's, oh, but you, it's, I would say better. I would say better. I think she's probably a bit worse, but she's a high card. Wow. Okay. Don't Set. ever think it too much. Uh, deep down, he really has very mainstream sensibilities. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Michelle Geller, better or worse than Michelle Pfeiffer? Worse. I think you would say worse. Worse. Sarah Jessica Parker, better or worse than Sarah Michelle Geller? Worse. Worse, yeah. I think maybe better. Wow. Wow. It's wow. Buffy, man. <laughs> Kurt Russell, better or worse than Sarah Jessica Parker? Better. Better. Russell Crowe, better or worse than Kurt Russell? I would say better, but that's because Russ is a... I'd say better. He's worse. Oh, he is, of course he's worse. Of course he's worse. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Myers, better or worse than Russell Crowe? Better. The, the comedian or the serial the, killer? The, the, the comedian. I would no, say both. Better. Both better. Better, better. Kevin Smith, better or worse than Mike Myers? <laughs> worse. 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 Tony Collette, better or worse than Kevin Smith? Oh, worse. Better. Better. Wow! Why would you say worse? Tony Collette's uh, great, right? I, I don't know, but anyway. Yeah, she's great. She's great. Carry on. Eric. <laughs> Eric Clapton, better or worse than Tony Collette? <laughs> oh, worse, 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 worse. Yeah. yeah. Is that it? Worse. That's a seven. Okay, you got a seven. You got a seven. You got a seven. Yes. Um, do you know what? This season, you're the first person to get a seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got a seven, which means, I mean, normally I'd say you're bang average, but the average is quite low this season <laughs> so uh you've got seven which means you're not quite as good as Helena drew with 10 uh dane baptiste uh, marina certis with nine or baz from massive wagons with eight but you are better than jamie adams carl gas izzy sooty miles chuck with six sarah gibbs laura jean marsh and steve bruchea with five I'll take that. Yeah, it's pretty Imagine good. Imagine being pretty as good. low as five. That's absolutely crazy. <laughs> um, right, so your show uh, is on uh, Soho Theatre 
Um, again, I mean, I'm doing all. I know you're doing, you're doing great <laughs> work. I'm doing here. really well between um, the 9th and 11th of September. That's correct. September, Steen Raskopoulos of Business Never Stops. Um, it's been lovely talking to you today. Uh, been thank lovely, you. yeah, really enjoyed thank it. Thank you for coming on the show. Don't go anywhere. We need to get a photo off you. Um, uh, but, <laughs> but for the purposes of the audience, we are all going now. So it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye, everyone. There's definitely no photos being taken. This is goodbye <laughs> from Nathaniel. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Steen. Goodbye. Steen, we're uh, lowering the uh, rope ladders uh, for the fan club, clubhouse. Uh, come on up. Lovely visual. Uh, we'll talk about Kevin Costner and improv uh, <laughs> some more. Right, okay. I don't know why I've ended it like that. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Look after each other. Bye.